So the goal was really to populate Dunder Mifflin with people who, who looked like they didn't belong on a television show, let alone one on prime time. Let's put people into this show who, A, the audience won't know, mm-hmm. because that's you know, part of the conceit. It's, you know, we're, we're making a documentary about the day-to-day lives of paper company employees, but also people who just don't, aren't, aren't obviously glamorous. And, and those are your St. Louisans, right? Well, I mean, that's well, no insult. We're, we're proud of that. Yeah, well, well, to that end, by the way, one of the things... I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. I'm Emily Woodbury, senior producer for St. Louis on the Air. Before today's episode, I want to take a moment to say thank you for listening. Our team works hard to provide nuance on the news that shapes your life and your community. And we wouldn't be able to do this without your support. The money you give to St. Louis Public Radio helps fund our podcast. So please go to stlpr.org donate and give an amount that works for you. Your contribution, along with that of your neighbors, is what fuels St. Louis on the air. And we're really grateful. Thank you for your support. Ken Quapis is a successful Hollywood director. He's got 11 feature films to his credit. That includes He's Just Not That Into You and The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. He also helped to launch no less than nine TV shows, directing the pilot episodes of The Office, The Larry Sanders Show, The Bernie Mac Show, and more. But his love of filmmaking began long before he moved to California. It started back in Belleville. That's where he marveled at Lawrence of Arabia on the screen of the Skyview Drive-In and drove to Maryland Heights to see American Graffiti at the Westport Twin Cinema. And yes, Ken Quapis remembers the place where he saw each film. Movie theaters for me are secular houses of worship, and it's important to be specific about where I experience cinematic revelations, he writes in his new book. That book is called But What I Really Want to Do is Direct, Lessons from a Life Behind the Camera, and he joins us today to talk about it. So Ken Quapis, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So your book is such a great guide for somebody wanting to learn how to be a, a director or be a better director, but it's also a great book for anyone who loves movies. What made a kid in the St. Louis suburbs such a cinephile? <laughs> well, I'm not sure exactly, but just early on I found myself you know, using spending all of my allowance at the movies. And, and pretty quickly, I started to figure out that there was somebody behind the scenes, you know, pulling the strings, making choices that either made a film more or less interesting. And I decided I wanted to be that someone. You write that when you were a kid in Belleville, at one point, you wanted to be a film critic. How did you even know film critic was a gig? I, I, <laughs> I still, I'm not sure what got into me. I was in the third grade and the teacher and charge of the class had everyone, each person had to stand up and say what they wanted to be when they grew up. And I do remember there's a boy in front of me who stood up and said he wanted to play outfield for the Cardinals. And then I got up and said I wanted to be a film critic. And like, (laughs) this was met with nothing but blank (laughs) incomprehension on the part of everyone. But I think I, I, you know, my my father uh, subscribed to the weekend, the Sunday New York Times. So I was actually mm-hmm. always reading the arts and leisure section, even as a kid. And and, and, and again, I, I became weirdly obsessed with film reviewers as much as I did film directors. 
Um, I, I don't know what came over me. <laughs> and, and you're fortunate you chose the route of wanting to direct movies rather than write about them because it seems like movie criticism is that's a dying art right there. Um, but what's amazing is, um, you know, you ended up living this dream. You got to be a movie director and you actually directed your first feature film when you were just 24 years old. In the book, you kind of make it sound easy how you landed that job. Was it in real life? Well, it, it was, I mean, it was a very hard film to direct. That's, you know, Sesame Street presents Follow That Bird. And, um, I, you know, I think that more than anything, I was just so eager to do it. And, 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 uh, and when I met Jim Henson, I was also very clear with him about what I didn't know. I sat down with him at, our, you know, at my interview, and I pretty quickly into the interview said, I've never directed a puppet. I have, I have no idea how to direct a puppet. <laughs> and that could have easily, uh, you know, the meeting could have gone south at that point. But Jim was very, uh, very happy for me to admit what I didn't know. And he just said, look, at here's the bottom line. Just talk to puppeteers like they're actors. <laughs> and uh, so, no, the film was difficult. It was a complicated film to do. Um, but uh, I, I guess, you know, it, it, it did come pretty easily for me, I will say. I know many people who are now directors who spent much longer trying to get that first job. Yeah, and you got that first job, and this film has become kind of a cult favorite. People who were kids, frankly, I remember watching this film in a movie theater when I was a little kid, and it's so much better than it had to be. Like, it didn't pander to its audience at all. There's there's some real emotional heart to this. You you also did an homage to North by Northwest in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Like, this was, this was a remarkable first film. Um, but what I'm interested in is this idea of just being 24 years old, you're having to be in charge of people who are much older than you. What kind of complications came with having to tell these these lifelong puppeteers what to do when you're just this kid fresh out of film school? Well, I I, I mean, first of all, I didn't pretend to know more than I did, and I was and I found first I mean the the, the Muppet the people you know who who operated those puppets Carol Spinney of mm-hmm. course who plays Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch Jim Henson who does Kermit and Ernie and then. Frank Oz, who does Cookie Monster, Grover, and Bert, they were super gracious towards me. And, and, and you know, these were people who had created these characters, so who was I to tell them how to perform them? But they wanted direction. Hmm. And as for the crew, I was, as I recall, I was probably the youngest person on the crew. But I, I think that pretty quickly I figured out that if you, you know, try and create an atmosphere where people feel acknowledged and respected, they will everyone will bring their A game to the table. Hmm. So that's something I learned. I think I, I think because I was the newbie, because I was the you know, the youngest person on the crew, I, I, I had I made that observation and that I've tried to continue to maintain that throughout my career. Yeah, you have a lot of great advice in this book, and a lot of it has to do with with shots and how to put a movie together. But then there's also a lot of it that has to do with just how to deal with people. And I feel like a lot of this advice in this book um, would have applied equally well in my career as I was trying to be an editor and deal with writers. Mm. Do you feel like creative people are all the same? Uh, They're kind of a bundle of anxiety, and if you can learn to work with that, uh, you can get the best out of them. Well, I mean, what I what I feel is that there's a lot of life lessons to learn, to glean from the directing process, and one of them, obviously, is for you know for anyone who's in a leadership or managerial position. I mean, I think that that you'll enjoy my stories about trying to wrangle a sometimes unruly group of people, trying to get a lot of people who are passionate, uh, but have different agendas all on the same page, 
And I don't, I, there's no secret to it. But again, I, I feel like 90% of it is just sort of creating an atmosphere where people feel acknowledged. This is the simplest thing in the world, but learn the names of the people you're working with. I've, I've visited sets before where directors have no idea what the, <laughs> the names of their crew members are. Mm. Uh, the, the crew is basically invisible. I mean, how hard, I mean, there are a lot of people, but I mean, come on, how hard is it to memorize names? Yeah, so, just kind of making again, that effort to, to make people feel valued can go a long way. Yeah, absolutely. And, know, and, basic, and also, you know, in terms of working with actors, you know, the key is to create an environment where people feel safe safe to play, safe to go out on a limb, safe to make a fool of themselves. So again, for me, like 90% of it is like setting a tone. Hmm. And you weren't just dealing with human actors. You had these Muppets involved in Follow That Bird. You also later directed a film called Dunstan Checks In. And I got to admit, I haven't seen this one. After reading your chapter about it, I plan to watch this immediately. There is an orangutan in this. But what was fascinating about reading your chapter about this is you were less focused on how difficult it was working with an orangutan and more you had this realization that the orangutan is almost the Buster Keaton role in this film. Tell, tell me about that. Well, I mean, the film Dunstan Checks In has a lot of physical comedy, a lot of sight gags, a lot of opportunity for great visual comedy. So when I took on the job, I thought a lot about many of my favorite you know, comedies, you know, and, and when I, uh, but, but by the way, I, I hadn't thought about Buster Keaton. I thought about a lot of great films that were set, comedies set in hotels, because Dunstan Checks In is set entirely in a big hotel in New York. So I thought about films like What's Up, Doc, Peter Bogdanovich's film. I thought about The Bell Boy, Jerry Lewis's film. But only when I actually met the star, the orangutan's name is Sammy, <laughs> my first meeting with the Simeon star, Sammy, I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he kind of extended his long arm and sort of tousled my hair, and he had this completely deadpan, beautiful deadpan face, and I thought, oh my gosh, Buster Keaton, <laughs> the great stone face. And I thought, oh wow. I, I, it suddenly occurred to me that not only could I sort of pay homage, or pay homage, pay homage to my favorite silent films, silent comedies, but here I was getting to work with a silent star. So I, I heartily encourage you to watch that one. <laughs> so. and, and you have a scene in there where you do pay the direct homage, and I'm not sure how to say that either. I think that's right. Um, but you're paying homage to, to Buster Keaton, and then you ended up getting the most remarkable um, appreciation of that homage. Will you tell our listeners that story? Sure. We had a, At the premiere, one of the stars of the film walked up to me, and there was an uh, an older woman on his arm. Glenn, Glenn Shaddix is the actor, and he introduced me. He said, uh, "Can I'd like you to meet my date for the premiere, Eleanor Keaton?" And I like, I froze because Eleanor Keaton, that would be Buster Keaton's widow, and I was you know shaking her uh, very frail hand, and she said, "Buster would have loved." This film, I, and I, I, to this day, that is the most important compliment I've ever received. Um, she went on, and she said, Buster would have loved your tribute to the film Steamboat Bill Jr. So what happens in Steamboat Bill Jr. is Buster plays this very kind of artsy, kind of twee, you know, college student who's come home after a semester or so, and his very, you know, kind of masculine father insists that he get rid of his artsy beret and wear a, a more manly hat. So there's this wonderful scene where father and son go to a store and, 
and Buster tries on like 20 different hats. It's hilarious. It's, I mean, only Buster could come up, could create a beautiful comic set piece just trying on a bunch of hats. Well, in Dunstan, there's a scene where the, uh, the Simeon title character, who in the film is a jewel thief, who kind of goes in and <laughs> out movie. of different people's, goes in and, in and out of the, you know, different rooms in this hotel stealing jewelry, but he goes into a woman's room kind of gathers all the jewelry, but before, before he makes his exit, he notices that she has lots of different hats sitting near a vanity table. So he parks himself at the vanity table and starts trying them on one by one. And that was, my, that was, a, that was a very deliberate homage to Mr. Keaton. And needless to say, I was, what's the best word I can think of? I was gobsmacked to find that at the premiere, no less than his widow was there and appreciated it. We're talking today to Ken Quapis. He's a Belleville native, a Hollywood director, and his new book is But I w- What I Really Want to Do is Direct, Lessons from a Life Behind the Camera. It's a really good book. Um, if you love movies, there's so much you can learn about the making of them. And even if you just need some management tips, Ken has some great ideas. Now, Ken, I promised our listeners that we would talk about The Office. Um, mm-hmm. You directed the pilot. There's a great chapter about that. And it includes something I think is absolutely critical to that show's success, and that is the cast. And I learned in this chapter that you discovered Creed Bratton. Tell us how, how this guy came to your attention. Well, Creed and I worked together before The Office. We, he, he was a stand-in on another show I worked on, The Bernie Mac Show. Now, a stand-in for any listeners who do not know what that means. That means that you're sort of the proxy for the actors. Once the actors are dismissed and the lighting begins, the stand-ins take their positions and for, the, for the lighting. And uh, so on one particular day, I was you know, going about my business, and I kept overhearing Creed. I hadn't met him yet, but Creed chatting up another stand-in, and Creed was going on and on about rock and roll. I heard little snatches of the conversation. You know, quote, oh, you know, it was a wild scene backstage at the Whiskey. Or, you know, or it's like, oh, yeah, when we opened for the doors at the, you know. So I heard these little snatches. I thought, what, what the heck is, what's going on here? So I finally pulled him aside introduced myself, and he introduced himself as Creed Bratton, the original guitarist of the band The Grassroots, hmm. a band I knew and, and um, a band I really enjoyed. And we got to be pals over the course of that shoot. Uh, our, you know, our paths then diverged, but he called me when he heard I was working on the pilot of the office and asked if there was any stand-in work. I said, no, there wasn't going to be stand-ins for this show because of the style of the show. It be, being a fake documentary, a mockumentary, we decided to dispense with certain traditional things like stand-ins. But, I said, the bullpen, the Dunder Mifflin bullpen, has a few empty desks in the background. Creed, would you mind just you know sitting at one as a background player for you know six days while we shoot the pilot? Uh, there's no guarantee this show's going to get picked up, but you know, be six days of extra work. So he came in. He was happy to came in, took a seat, and nine seasons later, he, you know, <laughs> grew into one of the beloved characters of the show. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of it was just based on his very creedness. I mean, that it's just an amazing character. One of the other amazing characters on this show is also someone you discovered, a fellow St. Louisan, Phyllis Smith. She was there as a casting assistant. What made you realize that this non-actor was ready to act? Well, it wasn't so much that I had any realization about her acting ability. I just so I was so taken with her vibe. Now, here, let me set the scene. She's the casting associate, and that means her job is to sit with me in the auditions 
and read lines opposite the, the actors who were you know, coming in to try and get a role. And one day I found myself getting you know, increasingly bored with the actors themselves, but more and more fascinated by this woman sitting next to me. I didn't know her name. All I knew is that she had this kind of wonderfully earnest, I'll, I'm going to say it, Midwestern vibe going on. I had no clue where she was from. And after uh, you know, a session, I took the showrunner aside and I said, you know, this woman, the casting associate, she really would, she, I can easily see her as a Dunder Mifflin employee. Hmm. And our showrunner, Greg Daniels, said, let's invite her uh, in. And, and we did. And, uh, you know, again, she had to quit her day job as a casting associate with no guarantee that this show would get picked up. Um, again, you know, the pilot, shooting a pilot does not mean they, they're ordering a series. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm very proud of the fact that uh, Phyllis, you know, has also become, you know, a, you know, one of the great members of the ensemble and a, and a wonderfully, you know, beloved actor. Yeah, there, the office has so many St. Louisans in it. Uh, you know, it wasn't just that you were there. Phyllis Smith was there. Jenna Fisher, Ellie Kemper ended up being there. And I know you also directed the final episode of it. So you were there mm -hmm. for the, the Ellie Kemper years. Is there something about that show uh, that makes the St. Louis mentality a good fit for it? Well, let's see. I'm, I, let's see if I can answer that question without <laughs> making a misstep. When we cast the show... You know, our job was to you know make create a show that didn't look like a normal broadcast television show, mm -hmm. and you know that obviously that you know that applied to the look of the show, the camera, the shooting style, the the the, the comic tone, and, but most importantly the casting. So the goal was really to populate Dunder Mifflin with people who who looked like they didn't belong on a television show, let alone one on prime time. So the idea was let's put people into this show who, A, the audience won't know, mm -hmm. because that's, you know, part of the conceit is, you know, we're, we're, we're making a documentary about the day-to-day -day lives of paper company employees, but also people who just don't, aren't, aren't obviously glamorous. And, and those are your St. Louisans, right? Well, I mean, that's well, no insult. We're, we're proud of that. Yeah. Well, well, to that end, by the way, one of the things that we did, we being Greg Daniels and myself, is during the pilot, at least, we insisted that makeup and hair people never go on the set hmm. at all. Uh, the actors were given little compacts tucked into their desks, and they would do their own touch-ups. But the idea was, how do you de-glamorize these people? How do you make them look as real as possible? Um, I, 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 and I feel like it worked. I mean, I feel like there's a, there's a certain kind of... Um, and there is a certain kind of drabness to their presentation. I mean, I think <laughs> I think some of the characters wore the same wardrobe like week after week. Yeah. And um, but but the main thing was that again the idea was that it it wasn't a show you know populated by you know sexy people. It wasn't you know the the Melrose Place. It was it was Scranton. Yeah, and Scranton by way of St. Louis. <laughs> Scranton could be St. Louis. Well, I was most excited to talk to you about The Office, but I also heard from a listener. This is uh, Christoph, who who follows us on Twitter, and he was so excited about your two episodes of Freaks and Geeks. I have no oh, yeah. idea what he's talking about here, but he says, ask him if he tried on the Parisian night suit. Does that question make any sense? I, I, it makes a lot of sense. Now, I, I would not have fit into the Parisian night suit, but here's the, just to, just to <laughs> explain a little bit, the two episodes I did, uh, one is entitled Tests and Breasts, ah. and the other one is entitled Looks and Books. And in the second episode, the looks referred to the, you know, the young character Sam, 
He would be one of the geeks, not the freaks, and he's really, uh, really determined to impress uh, a girl at school. So he goes to the mall and is sort of basically persuaded to purchase a disco, I'll call it a Parisian night suit. Let's call it a disco, you know, era, you know, <laughs> night suit or a disco era suit. Yeah. That that he that he wears to school and is completely mortified when you know everyone finds it so laughable. So the Parisian night suit, I did not, I did not try it on. <laughs> I, I I will say that I have worn equally ridiculous things, but I have not tried that one on. We also got an email from uh, Michael Bugue. He describes himself as your fellow junior Bill in Hollywood. These are graduates of St. Louis University High School. Um, He says, congrats on your book and make sure to tell the St. Louis Public Radio listeners about the differences between directing in film and television, since you are one of the best at discussing that topic. And he adds, and don't forget to tell them about when you played piano on the Queen Mary on camera for a scene and he's just not that into you. I have just uncorked a can of worms with only about a minute left on the show, but Ken, you want to run with either of those balls? Well, let's start with the last one. There's a scene in the film, He's Just Not That Into You, where Scarlett Johansson, uh, she plays a would-be singer, and she sings at a bar, and we shot it on the Queen Mary. I don't know why I don't know why we shot there, of all places. But anyway, so I, I, I'm sitting at the piano accompanying her, and, uh, and she's, by the way, she's a lovely singer, wonderful singer, and, and, uh, and I loved working with her. But yes, there are a few shots, and in fact, I think if you find one of those old-fashioned Blu-rays or DVDs of He's Just Not That Into You, there's a, uh, a deleted scene which includes the entire number that Scarlett sings. Wow. Um, I'll, I'll say very quickly about the difference between film and television is, <clears throat> I mean, one of the great things about directing a feature film is getting to trace the arc of a character over, you know, over a, 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 the, the span of a long-form narrative. And, you know, it, it, again, you sit there from start to finish. You don't break it up. You don't go to the bathroom. You don't come back next week. I would say that one of the great advantages of telling a similar story in serial form for television is you can dig deeper Hmm. into that story, into that character's life, into that character's story, just because you have a little more real estate just to explore a little bit more, you know, again, backstory, uh, subplots, etc., uh, that's that's such a big question. We could have we could do about a half hour on that. Yeah, one. I'm impressed with how you were able to answer that huge question in less than a minute. That makes you just the perfect <laughs> radio guest. And I also, in addition to how fun you are to talk to, I really do want to recommend this book. This is called "But What I Really Want to Do Is Direct: Lessons from a Life Behind the Camera." That's by Ken Quapis, and it turns out it's in the top ten for sales from local independent bookstores here in St. Louis this week. So that's really exciting. And so, Ken, congratulations on that, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I loved uh, being a guest today. Thank you. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Evie Hempel and Lara Hamden with production assistance from Aaron Dorr. The senior producer is Emily Woodbury and the executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.